In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if anyone who shares in peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. If peace is that which the disciples are seeking and finding in their journey, then the nature of that peace must at least be examined. Is peace simply the absence of war, of conflict, or is it not something fuller and more present? The fulfillment of promises, the provision of needs, the arrival at a state of being in which all one's existential cares are set aside and one enjoys a state of bliss, of belonging, of union with God and with one another. How do we attain to such a state? Can we look back in our lives and find it? The prophet Isaiah says, this is that state. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. The image of mother and child is one of just that peace that shalom in which, indeed, everything that the child needs is being provided at the mother's breast, in the warmth of her embrace, as right brain to right brain the child is being built up by that mutual gaze of love, not just in body but in brain, by the love that flows with the life-giving substance that she provides. Indeed, the love flows back and forth. The first thousand days, the neurobiologists call it, from conception until well into the second year of life, in which the strength of that dyad is fundamental to the future. Father comes along and takes his place, of course, and one of the images that haunts our consciousness is of the father and daughter, united in death as they sought to cross the Rio Grande to a better life. That's a problem for politicians, of course. Just are the images that haunt our conscience of children forcibly separated from families as a political act. We're talking about peace here, and not in the political sense, which gives only that fleeting peace which is the best that this world unaided can muster, second best at best. Jesus is talking about a peace that persists, even when the world around you or within you is falling apart. A delicate peace, a fragile peace, yet one imbued with a strength that nothing in this world can overcome. The love of God for his people Israel and the desire of God that all people would be his people. This is the love that motivates the disciples to take to the road then. But if their search is for those with whom they can share the peace that they bring, Jesus' desire is that they bring that peace to those with whom it is already shared, already there, already present in some way, present even if not accounted for. 
So the sharing is not just a matter of giving, of pouring all that one has via all that one knows into the awareness of those who presumably don't know it or even know their need of it. No, it's a matter of finding it or sharing in a process of discovery in which one uncovers in the life of those with whom one shares life such pieces of the peace as they possess already, as they have sought and found or stumbled on or claimed in some other heuristic way, a treasure in a field, shall we say, or a lost coin found again. It's about listening first, then speaking, and that speaking being a speaking into, a sharing of what one has received from the other as the catalyst for giving what one has been given. The disciples are called, in other words, to proclaim. But if the message is falling on fellow ground, they are not to waste their time or that of their hearers. They are to withdraw politely, but tactically, and move on. Jesus is saying that God has already done the preparatory work, or he has not. God has gone ahead in provenient grace, or God has not. But there is no getting ahead of God in this or anything. The peace that Jesus gives for we his children to pass on is again not as this world gives, a political product, the best that our pragmatic collective egos can concoct. It is from beyond this world and it takes us from this world. It takes us as citizens of this country or that, defined by national boundaries and political preferences, and grants us a new citizenship in heaven and in the age to come, the new creation over which Jesus sits as Lord already. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our names are written in heaven, and with them our sights too are set on that space and time when this world shall be at peace, and all needs met and the longing to belong finally satisfied in a self-giving love that sets the needs of others over and above our own. That being said, if we set our sights on peace at any price, we shall never have it because it is a relational state and not just a private preserve, peace is to be created and to be shared rather than pursued and possessed. Indeed, we often give it to others at our own expense. That is what love is, isn't it? And peace and love occupy a shared domain. Again, it is human self-centeredness that is the proverbial fly in the ointment, original sin, making its presence felt too, even in the midst of concord. The best political process is therefore built upon self-interest, enlightened or otherwise, won't get you there. But what interests humans rarely lasts for long. And likewise, any agreement between humans built on such an inherently unstable foundation. Jesus is offering something better, deeper, and more lasting, even if it requires give and take, which is really give and give. Gustav Wingren, in his book on Luther and vocation, explores the reformer's concept of stand or station, 
one situational place in life in which earthly relational structures become susceptible to grace, the work of God's spirit. He looks at motherhood and how it is placed within the structure of the family and the institution of marriage and how God uses that. And I quote, here we come across what for Luther is the decisive contrast between God's self-giving love and human egocentricity. The human being is self-willed, desiring that whatever happens shall be to his own advantage. When husband and wife in marriage serve one another and their children, this is not due to the heart's spontaneous and undisturbed expression of love every day and hour. This is Luther being described. Rather, in marriage as an institution, something compels the husband's selfish desires to yield and likewise inhibits the egocentricity of the wife's heart. At work in marriage is a power which compels self-giving to spouse and children. So it is the station itself which is the ethical agent, for it is God who is active through the law on earth. We're making Luther sound a lot like Calvin, but he embraces the law in many ways. Not just the law, however, but the spirit is the real power which motivates that self-giving. And the interplay of outwardly induced habit and inwardly deduced grace is here, is here teased out. We do weary of doing good if all love is one-way love, and any parent or any spouse can love or any lover can attest that love can be one way for a long time. Love loves to be returned, however, and if the essence of grace is delayed gratification, then the essence of disgrace is finding gratification in the short term in ungraceful, if not disgraceful, ways. We have dignified much sowing to the flesh in our culture as simple human pleasures, but again, pleasures that do not last, and that is the test of them. The restless cravings return, and peace is fugitive once again and a moving target. We must persist, says the apostle, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And let us seek that peace, which is the precondition of that sowing of that which will last as we venture forth beyond the cozy confines of our communities of faith, too. In today's readings, we see a father who shows his love as if he were a mother who shows that mother love is our most enduring model of love, the love of the mother for the child. And in that same icon of the baby held in the mother's arms, we see the first image we have of our Savior, the Son. In that vulnerability, in that tender fragility, we look into the Father's heart as well, made more and more evident in what it really is. 
The colic today encapsulates it. Almighty God, God of might and power, the God we fear, whose laws we dread to break, you have broken the tyranny of sin. That's how you've used your power. And have sent the spirit of your son into our hearts, whereby we call you father. But for the son, we have no idea what the father looks like. And but for the spirit, we have no idea what the son looks like. But he has shown us his tender, loving, maternal heart. Let us then, as the collect says, learn to love one another, to give without thought of reward, to pray for forgiveness and gentle restoration when we err and can see the depth of our falling short, and to take all the freedom that we have to offer it at the foot of the cross to the service of that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is even now bringing us and all creation into that glorious freedom, that perfect freedom which comes in God's perfect service to the children of God and to all the children of his creation. Amen.